Welcome into another episode of the Hopeless Sports Magic Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor, and today I'm going to give you my reactions to the NFC and AFC Championship games that took place on Sunday, and I'm going to give you some of my reactions to some of the free agent signings that have gone on in Major League Baseball over the course of the winter. So this is going to be a great episode. This is the Hopeless Sports Magic Podcast. Welcome in, everybody, to this episode of the Hopeless Sports Magic Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor, and today I'm going to give you my thoughts on the NFC and AFC Championship games that took place on Sunday and some of my thoughts on some of the free agent signings that have gone on for Major League Baseball over the course of the winter. There's still a couple of guys that have still been unsigned, but there have still also been plenty of other signings for me to give you my thoughts on. So let's jump right in. We're going to start off with the NFC Championship game. This is the first of both bad predictions that I had on the championship game weekend. I was 0 for 2, and I picked Green Bay. I thought coming in that Aaron Rodgers would be able to just pick apart the young secondary of Tampa. The game against the Rams and how against the number one defense in the league kind of gave me some I guess, false hope that they would be able to run the ball really well against the number one defense, number one run defense in the league, and that they would be able to really assert their will on Tampa's defense. But that's not the case at all. Tampa's defense stepped up and was able to help them come away with the win, despite probably one of the worst playoff performances that Tom Brady has had in his career multiple interceptions, multiple missed throws, and lack of execution down the stretch, but they got some help from their defense with plenty of sacks, including two by both JPP and Shaq Barrett, and multiple tackles for loss, and a really lack of a running game throughout most of the game for Green Bay. And I just think this shows... Oh, the, the biggest takeaway I have over the course of these past few playoff games compared to how the both the wild card game and the end of the regular season went for Tampa was how important Devin White is to this defense, how he makes his speed in the run game, is able to limit, got, keep running backs from turning the corner. He's able to get pressure on the quarterback when they send him on blitzes, and he's quite improved in pass coverage recently in his but able to really take some pressure off of the young secondary in that way as well. So he didn't really have anything flashy himself, but I think he was really able to change what Green Bay was trying to do a lot. I think they were trying to run away from him, especially, and they had to, they were so worried about, I think, him blitzing and creating pressure on Aaron Rodgers that it allowed Shaq Barrett and JPP to have the game that they did. There's also some kudos goes to Vita Vea, his presence inside as the nose tackle in that 3-4 scheme that Todd Bowles runs. Did some of the similar things, really took pressure off of JPP and Shaq Barrett. He clogged up the holes in the running game, just did exactly what you want a nose tackle to do. And then, despite his injury in the third quarter, I think he was... This guy was the most important player on the 
Tampa defense in this game. And that guy is Jordan Whitehead. He had two forced fumbles on the day, made some great tackles in the run game and in the short on short passes, really constantly coming underneath and able to make plays on the ball. That's probably one of the best games I'm pretty sure he's played in his career in Tampa. Struggled at times with the big play, but even with Antoine Winfield out, he was able to really make some key plays early in the game that helped create turnovers and allowed Tampa to hold on late in this one. On the other side of the equation, Aaron Rodgers really struggled. He was had pressure in his face constantly. Did a pretty decent job of not fumbling despite the angle that some of those sacks at him came like some of the ways he was hitting the angles and how they were able to get a hand on the ball. There was the first, I believe the first sack that Shaq Barrett had, I was extremely surprised that that didn't end up in a fumble or even like a scoop and score for Tampa going the other way. But biggest reason I think outside of the Matt LaFleur field goal decision, which I'll get to that later was, Devontae Adams really had a ton of missed opportunities. A lot of people have been saying he's the number one receiver in the league, not even just top three, that he is the best receiver in the league. And he did not play like that on Sunday. He had a drop touchdown, was unable to get open in key situations in the red zone, which I think is why Green Bay continued to come up short and why I really added to Matt LaFleur's decision to kick a field goal in a in an eight-point game like that. But, I mean, the fir- that first throw where they hit through it back shoulder to him towards the left sideline, like, you have, to, you have to bring that in. I know it's a tough play. I know it's a back shoulder throw. But you're, as a guy that's been playing at the level that Devontae Adams is at, you, he's expected to make that play. And... It didn't help that Green Bay was still able to make some plays at times with Marquez Valdez Scantling able to catch an absolute drop um, dot from Aaron Rodgers and score on a, a long touchdown pass, and he made some key catches in third down situations as well. Robert Tanyan had a touchdown. He was the red zone threat that he's been all season long. The one thing that changed was – Devontae Adams really struggled, and Aaron Rodgers missed some throws to him as well. And that's what allowed Tampa to really not have to rely on this high-powered offense to win this game. And biggest thing, I guess, that's also up in the air is the pass interference call on Tyler Johnson. A lot of people will say the Packers got screwed shouldn't have come down to that whatever you want however you want to phrase it this is my stance on this and this is my stance on any game that comes down to and a, a big call like that and this includes the national championship game between Georgia and Alabama with the Tyler Simmons play if a game is coming down to one call to an officiating decision like that, then 
you deserve to lose because if it's coming down to that point, then that means you most likely had plenty of opportunities to win the game. And that's especially the case when you look at this game. Green Bay had multiple red zone opportunities, multiple times to really assert their will on the scoreboard and to pull away and make Tom Brady have to make the throws that he didn't have to make. But because of their sheer incompetence in the red zone and indecisiveness in those situations, they were forced to have to get some third down stop down five points when Tampa had the ball, obviously. And with uh, being a Tom Brady-led offense, even if you keep them down throughout most of the game, it's still a worrisome situation to throw yourself into. And regardless of if that's pass interference or not, you shouldn't have, they shouldn't have been in that situation in the first place. And it's on them for not capitalizing on situations earlier in the game. Now, if you feel like I'm kind of dodging answering this question, that's, it wasn't pass interference to me, but it was holding and that hardly changes the outcome of the game. Why do I say it's holding and not pass interference? Obviously, there's the screenshot that's been all over social media of Tyler Johnson's, I believe it's his undershirt underneath his jersey being stretched to pretty much its absolute limits. Um, so there's obviously an unusual amount of contact going on in that play. And it was very far downfield, whereas a lot of the calls that I think were have that we were letting play on in this game were at the line of scrimmage. I think that was the main difference. Is I think they were a lot more hesitant to throw the flag if it was a two-handed jam at the line of scrimmage by a defensive back on both sides of the ball. Didn't really see many holding or illegal contact penalties called on either defense but that has to be like the contact is obviously there the only argument that's i guess you warranted is whether it's pass interference or holding because that's just decided on whether the ball is catchable or not and i don't think it was catchable i don't see how Tyler Johnson or even somebody with the length of Mike Evans is going to bring the ball in, but the contact was obviously there. So there has to be a penalty flag. Now the key to the whole situation is both of those are automatic first down penalties. So obviously it still ends either way you want it to go. It still ends with Tampa taking knees to let the clock run out because they have a first down in that situation. And because you don't want to end up in a situation like that to where you put the game into the official, the officials hands. That's why you have to execute in the red zone early in the game. That's why you have to take risks and, and go for it when it's fourth and eight or so, but it's a one possession game. You have to try to, if you're Aaron Rodgers. I know it's a bit of a risk at his age to try to run for the pile on, on that third down play prior to the field goal, but you've got to try to make a run for that. You might take a bit of a shot to the ribs or land awkwardly, but it's the NFC championship game and you have to kind of 
sacrifice your body on that play to try to run for it. It's plenty of green grass out to the right. And instead he decided to throw the ball into double coverage to Devontae Adams. Who, if he's Julio Jones or DeAndre Hopkins, he's probably, those guys could probably bring that ball in, but I don't want to turn this into a best receiver in the league episode. Um, so I just was completely surprised at how this game shook out. It was pretty much the opposite of what I think I and everyone else expected it to be. I think everybody coming in was expecting this to be a shootout and a tremendous quarterback display by both guys, but both guys struggled and it really came down to which defense limited the big plays and limited the mistakes. Tampa was able to get pressure on Aaron Rodgers, didn't have a lot of penalties, and Green Bay gave up a ridiculously awful touchdown pass before half and had a penalty go their way, did not go their way late in the game, and they allowed Tampa to convert some big plays when they when they needed to. So it was basically a, a bit of mistakes, just mistakes on the defensive side of the ball for Green Bay, I think, is what that was the difference in the game. Because you look at the stat sheet, time of possession goes to Green Bay. Yards and pretty much any other offensive production aside aside from points is goes to Green Bay's way, but when Tampa was able to, when it got into the red zone, Tampa showed this kind of bend but don't break capability that we haven't really seen from their defense all season long. They've really been a boom or bust kind of defense with a lot of sacks, a lot of turnovers, and then but then giving up big plays in the back end. They were able to turn that around this week and make Aaron Rodgers have to march down the field methodically, make play after play, make the Green Bay offense have to make play after play, and Green Bay was unable to come away with that. So I think you you don't want to always buy into kind of the 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 hype talk and just the the optimism that comes from some of the players inside the locker room. I mean, every team is going to have a guy that says they're Super Bowl contenders or they can really they really have a chance to win it all heading into the year, but from what has been said inside the Tampa locker room has been pretty accurate in terms of I don't think there's any real beef between Arians and Brady. I think it's just a little bit of competitive nature in both of them. And they really do seem to have taken a step after that week 15 game against Atlanta. And I think because of what I think the, the positive um, momentum, I guess that they were able to carry into the postseason, they were still able to, squeak out a game against Washington where they'd had some key guys out and got did just enough to get done. They really dominated the the uh, third game they played against New Orleans this year. 
in pretty much every facet of the game, turnovers, time of possession, big plays, however you want to look at it, Tampa controlled that game. And then when they came down to a team that you would think would be the team that's kind of like a kryptonite that not only have you do they have a do they match up well at least on paper with you but you've played them once already and it and it's even harder to beat a team twice and they were able to take care of that and i think that's just the tom brady factor moving from the afc east in new england to the nfc south in tampa so i don't want to make a prediction yet but i will say that if tampa does go on to win the super bowl to weeks from now, then I'm not going to be too surprised. And with that said, we're going to head to a short break from our sponsor anchor. And then I'm going to come right back with some of my analysis on the free agent signings going on in major league baseball. Now we move over to some major league baseball thoughts. And I know it's been a while, but I'm happy to include America's pastime into another episode of the Hopeless Sports Bankit podcast. It's been a pretty slow winter, taking on some guys a lot of time to figure out who they want to spend next spring with. And with the uncertainty of the COVID pandemic, I don't really blame them. And there's still plenty of big names that are left out there. Obviously, Trevor Bauer is still a free agent and is definitely the biggest name as well. And there was another keen guy, but he was just signed a contract to stay in Philadelphia. And that guy's J2 real real Muto. As of today, five years, 115 million for the undisputed best catcher in baseball. Philly is able to keep a key player to some of their success over the past couple of years what they little bit of success they've had but the big issue is to me it's another big contract that Philly's going to have to deal with after and after the ownership really said that they were going to spend stupid money they really have begun to spend stupid money they've got that they've got Gene Segura still they've got Harper on that massive deal and now they've got JT Realmuto added into the mix. This is kind of maintaining equilibrium with their offensive output, but I do think that, and I'm going to say this until we see them kind of become better than a 500 team, I want to see them really make a much more of an effort in trades and free agency to improve their bullpen. They've brought in some guys like Brandon Workman and they did bring in Archie Bradley, but I think they need a big time late inning guy to come in. But instead two of the biggest ones that were available in this free agency market were Kirby Yates and Liam Hendricks. And those two guys are heading to the American league. And then Brad hand who's probably the third guy left of all of the late inning guys and closers is now going to spend is on a one-year deal with the nationals and is a division rival of theirs. So it's as if the bullpens around them are really getting solidified, really improving 
Atlanta is, of course, another divisional opponent that still has plenty of arms. Pretty much lost Mark Melanson, but Drew Smiley comes in as a guy that can pitch both as a starter and as a reliever, and there's still plenty of guys there. I mean, obviously, Will Smith is probably going to take over as the closer role now that he's much more settled in, and they've still got Shane Green, plenty of other guys in the back end of this bullpen. So I think, if anything, Atlanta had a bit of excess of bullpen arms, and now they're returning to a normal amount, I guess. But until I see some increased, some improvements from the pitching staff as a whole from Philly, I'm just not going to say that they're a contender despite all of these big names and power bats that they have in their lineup. Another big offensive powerhouse of a player that's changing cities. This was yesterday or a couple days ago. I can't quite remember off the top of my head, but George Springer is going to Toronto, who is looking like might actually be the head contender in the AL East now. He signed a six-year, $150 million deal to go to Toronto, and he's had pretty good numbers in the shortened season for Houston, the biggest of all of it, along with his resume in 2017. is George has just been a pretty consistent big game hitter. He really was the reason that they and pushed him into the ALCS despite the fact that Houston was a 500 team coming into the playoffs and was a World Series MVP when Houston won the World Series in 2017. There's the question how much the sign stealing helped in, in that year, but I think given the production the year after the scandal broke loose, I think a lot of it is still there, obviously, and I think that really is going to help the offensive output of this Toronto team that's got kind of a little bit of everything with Bo Bichette, Nate Pearson coming in as one of the best young arms in baseball, possibly. And you've got Vladimir Guerrero Jr., who's, according to reports, has lost a lot of weight and is really leaned up. So maybe he can have a bounce back year for them at third base. And then on top of that, they also added a massive piece to their bullpen, which is going to greatly, I think, improve this kind of young and questionable pitching staff at times last year. And that guy's Kirby Yates, as I mentioned earlier. And I don't think they'll have a great consistent bullpen from sixth inning to nine, but if they're able to have a lead heading into the ninth, that's about as sure as you can get. Yates is a little bit older than a guy that's kind of just having his big breakout contract, but his consistency in that, great splitter fastball combo that he has, I think is really going to pay, make a difference. It will be interesting to see given how prevalent he is with his splitter to get ground balls. If playing on the Astro turf in or the field turf in Toronto is going to affect his ground ball game a little bit with how the ball is kind of, it's the ball's fast and, Toronto and whether that'll cause more, I guess, base hits getting through the hole 
compared to what would have been ground outs on a traditional field like Petco Park is in San Diego. A couple other signings of guys that I think could possibly be more of a difference maker than people realize is Michael Brantley stay is going to stay in Houston for another one year deal. It'll be really interesting to see how much of the offensive output he is able to pick up from George Springer leaving. I think there's going to be a lot more pressure on him. And especially given now a Springer gone, that makes Houston there makes their lineup that much more um, left-handed hitter heavy. I mean, they do have Bregman, who's a right-handed hitter, but Altuve really struggled last year. And then they'll also have Jordano, Jordan Alvarez as a big uh, left-handed power bat for them. So, But Brantley is very one of the best uh, bat-to-ball hitters, so I think he's pretty, been pretty consistent against both sides of the plate, but it will be interesting to see if maybe their offensive strategy changes a bit. I think they might become more of a contact put the ball in play type of offense with Springer who was a now that they don't have Springer who was much more of a launch angle home run hitter high strikeout number type guy um but I think given the changes going on with some other teams in the AL West with Kirby Yates departing from Oh, wait, that's from Liam Hendricks, I'm sorry, departing from Oakland and the complete front office shakeup that's going on in L.A. I still think this is Houston's division to lose in the AL West. But the biggest question, I guess, it's kind of a question squared situation, I guess you could say, is the Yankees have in the AL East have the one – thing that's kind of held them back from reaching that World Series championship that they've been looking for is consistent pitching. And they made a trade yesterday to get Jameson Tyone from Pittsburgh, who, I mean, as a prospect, was one of the was the epitome of a can't-miss guy, came along with a string of other big-time guys from Pittsburgh and Tyler Glasnow and Garrett Cole, who, funny enough, is are both in the AL East, one being on the Yankees, of course. But the Tyone has had injury issues and just health issues in general. He's had two Tommy John surgeries and actually had testicular cancer at one point when he was almost settling in to have a breakout year and then was sidelined with that health problem. So the main question for him is not if the production is going to be there or not. It was there throughout his minor league stint, but is he going to be able to consistently be in the rotation every five days during a 162 game season? So that's just another question on top of a question is does Tyone fix is Tyone going to stay healthy through this full 162-game season? And if he does, is it going to be the difference maker for the Yankees in the AL East, especially now that there's a lot more offensive firepower being added 
to the AL East with some of the signings going on. Now we move to what is called what I think is arguably the biggest free agency move or biggest offseason move made this year, and that is the entire Mets organization as a whole, but specifically Francisco Lindor. Lindor, of course, was a staple of the Cleveland Indians and was obviously probably going to be, it was a question of if he was going to be dealt or be the cornerstone during this rebuild phase. But what turned out to happen was Francisco was traded for essentially pennies to go to the Mets. He does have one year left on his arbitration contract before he becomes the, probably the biggest unrestricted free agent in baseball next year, but given the ridiculous amount of money that Steve Cohen has thrown at this Mets team since his acquisition of them, it will not surprise me if we get a pretty quick extension given to him that could have some Mike Trout, Bryce Harper money involved in this in the contract with him being probably the best shortstop in baseball and a switch hitter that hits for contact and power and plays tremendous defense. So I think, I mean, at least on paper, the Mets have become the biggest contender in the NL East. The issue is, just the Metsian stuff that tends to go on from them. I mean, they'll look tremendous in parts of the season and then they just look ridiculously awful or they have a ton of injuries going on. I mean, you look at the year where Jacob deGrom won the Cy Young when he only won 10 games. You look at Pete Alonso going through his hot and cold streaks. You look at the Mets looking pretty much horrible throughout much of the 2019 season and then nearly making a late playoff push that year and you just wonder if a new a shift in ownership and some of these offseason acquisitions that they've had is going to help them to finally turn the corner and become the team that Mets fans have wanted them to become for probably years now. I mean, it's been a lot more fruitful for fans in the Bronx area of New York compared to the Flushing side, but I think it's this has an opportunity for it to be the Mets' time to shine with Atlanta still not re-signing, Marcelo Zuna still having that hole in the outfield. Phillies haven't done too much to improve their bullpen. And then the Nationals are coming off of a pretty horrible last place finish in the NL East last last year with a massive World Series hangover and pretty much the same roster to go along with that. So it'll be really interesting to see if the moves that include adding Lindor, Carlos Carrasco, 
Trevor May to the bullpen and James McCann behind the plate can really change the overall. I think this has the chance to change the overall outlook in the National League East and should have both Phillies fans and Braves fans extremely worried despite especially Atlanta's NLCS run against to taking the Dodgers to seven games in the NLCS in the prior season. But thanks again for listening. This has been an episode of the Hopeless Sports Mantic podcast. Make sure to add the podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, whichever platform you listen to it on. Give it a follow and a like. And follow me on Twitter at TaylorBell222 in order to get some of my authentic sports opinions and show updates for the Hopeless Sports Mantic podcast. Thanks again for listening.